We're going to go again to the chap- Mark, book of Mark, chapter 14. And today we're going to look through verses 12 to 21. And this section, I went back and forth. You could call it many things. We're going to go with the section is called the Last Supper. And next week, when we do the second part of this, that is the Lord's Supper. And we will observe Lord's Supper together at that time. But this could also be called the Last Passover. Because this is a Passover meal, but it is the last one that Jesus observed, celebrated with his disciples. And it's a significant one because it is the ultimate Passover during that Passion Week. He is the Passover lamb, and therefore, in some respects, this is the last Passover. Because he is going to die that week as the Passover lamb. All of the 1,500 years' history of observing the Passover has pointed to him in that moment. And the Jewish people still celebrate Passover today, and as I read the scriptures, it sounds like they're still supposed to. But we understand the true meaning of it. So we're looking at the last Passover and the last supper as we review this today. This is the longest chapter in Mark, as we said last week. And in the previous section, we saw the love of Mary, we saw the treachery of Judas, and that continues into our section for today. His hypocrisy, his deception. I hope you've had a chance to find your place. I'm going to read this to us, and I'd invite you to stand, please. This is Mark 14, beginning in verse 12. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? So he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There, make ready for us. And his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. In the evening he came with the twelve. Now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful. And to say to him one by one, is it I? And another said, is it I? Then he answered and said to them, it is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The son of man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Let's pray together, please. Our Father, as we look together, at your word this morning. We're asking for your help. We're asking for your guidance. Holy Spirit, you are the author of this book. You are the teacher for us today. And we ask for you to do your work in our hearts. I pray that you would anoint me by your power and that I would preach accurately and boldly what you have for us today. That your words would come through and that we would have receptive hearts. Lord, we desire to hear from you. We desire to be more like Jesus. And we cannot do that on our own. We're asking for your grace. We're asking for your help. We're asking for your mercy. 
So Lord, convict us where we need it and encourage us where we need it. Today, during this time, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. The key word for today is betrayal. You probably could have figured that out. Betrayal. We know who the betrayer is. As a matter of fact, as you read through the four Gospels, often if there's a list of disciples, Judas is always last, and almost always it says, who betrayed him, or the same betrayed him. That's how he's known. That's how he's known in history. But in studying this, how does this apply to us? Because there's no one in this room, Jesus Christ is not here bodily with us. We cannot betray him in the same way that Judas did. So that means we need to know how this applies to us today. It's not just a history lesson. It's not just for more knowledge in our heads. What does God want for us in this day? And as I ask myself that question, the three points that I'm going to attempt to bring out are that number one, God is sovereign. We've said that so many times throughout this series in the Gospel of Mark, but he is in control. He is guiding, he is orchestrating the events, even in this night of his betrayal. Number two, anyone can commit any sin apart from the grace of God. It's not going to look the same. Like I said, we aren't going to commit the specific sin that Judas did on that night. But we have the ability to deny, as we'll see later with Peter in future studies. We have the ability to betray. We certainly have the ability to disobey our God and betray him in that way. Number three, Not everyone who seems to be born again is born again. And that's a warning to all of us. Not that I believe we can lose our salvation. I don't believe that. But we need to examine ourselves and make sure that we're of the household of faith. And so there's there's a sobering aspect of that in this passage as well. I'm going to go back to set the stage to just a smidge of review I'm going to begin in verse 10 now as we go verse by verse. Verse 10 says this, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray him, that is Jesus, to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. This is where we left off last week. Judas, here it says, one of the twelve, and we're going to keep seeing that, in our passage today. Judas, one of the twelve. He was one that Jesus chose. Jesus chose Judas. Remember, he went up on the mountain and prayed all night, and then he called those who would be his disciples to him. And what's interesting is here, and spelled out even more clearly in the book of John, in his account, the other disciples had no clue that Judas was the traitor. Until he showed up in the garden and betrayed the Savior with a kiss, nobody knew it was Judas. He was that good an actor. He was that good a hypocrite. Frankly, he was probably externally that moral of a person. And they didn't know who it would, who who would betray Jesus. But we know that he didn't believe in Jesus as Savior, and he didn't repent and believe, and he is in hell today. When it says in these verses that he sought how he might conveniently betray Jesus, he is ongoing, seeking, looking. He is busying himself continually to find the right opportunity to betray him. 
And that, that's what conveniently means. A suitable occasion. When is the time right? When is Jesus away from the crowds? Probably when is it dark that this can be done under cover of night? Now, into our new section for today, that first point that God is sovereign, verse 12. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? We talked about this some last week. Passover was Nisan 14. That's one of their months. So March, April for us, it's in the spring of the year, first month. We can read this in Exodus 12. You can get all of this and review it for your, for your own benefit. And then the next day, the 15th, begins a week-long celebration called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And they tended to use those kind of interchangeably by this point in time. So they may say unleavened bread and really kind of mean the Passover. They may refer to the entire thing as the Passover feast. And that seems to be what Mark is doing here. That when he says the preparation for the Passover, when he's describing that, he actually means this is prior to the days of unleavened bread. Because they're going to kill the Passover lamb. We've said in past studies that that lamb was selected on the 10th day of the month, examined to make sure that there was no spot, no wrinkle, no blemish, nothing wrong with that lamb, and then slain on the 14th between about 3 in the afternoon and 6 in the afternoon. And then had to be eaten between sundown and midnight. More about that in a moment. When the question comes up, they know he has come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, and they think the entire Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so it's just a foregone conclusion. We need to make arrangements. There needs to be a place we can do this because you had to have the lamb killed and eat the lamb within Jerusalem. That's in Deuteronomy. So there had to be some place where he and his disciples can gather safely at this point in order to have an uninterrupted meal together. So inside the city limits, there has to be some place. Where do you want us to go, Lord? How do you want us to do this? As we look back at chapter 11, it seems that the disciples and Jesus were probably in Bethany. So at this point, Jesus answered the question by sending two of his disciples. We know from Luke that it's Peter and John. And he gives them instructions but as we're going to see, they're not simple instructions. They're a little bit subtle. They're a little bit secretive. And the reason is that the location needed to remain secret. The homeowner needed to remain anonymous. Verse 13, And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, Jerusalem, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There, make ready for us. As I said, the two are Peter and John. Luke 22 tells us that. And we read this and think, okay, they're supposed to look for a guy. They're supposed to look for a guy carrying a pitcher of water. So what? Some of you may already know, that is a big deal. That's unusual. Because carrying water in a pitcher in that time and place was women's work. To see a guy carrying a pitcher was very unusual. Men carried water, at least for themselves, think more along the lines of canteen, so water skin kind of thing. That's how a man would carry water. So 
I realize there are exceptions to this. There are man purses. But this would be as strange as seeing a guy carrying a, a little handbag around with him. That's something that most men don't do. And so you would see this, and that would stand out. That's what Jesus is saying. Look for a guy who's going to stand out from all the others because he's carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him to the house and then ask the master of the house. Do we know who that is? No. Now, church history, tradition tells us that this is the author of this book, the human author, Mark's house, that his mother's house, that the owner of the house may even be his father. We don't know that. Scripture doesn't tell us that, but that's what tradition tells us. Furthermore, that this upper room may be the upper room they were gathered in all the way into the book of Acts. Could be, but that's, that's tradition. That's not gospel truth. You all, at this point in the year, we're into October, hard to believe, into October, coming into, we're already making arrangements with our family, you probably are too. Who are you spending Thanksgiving with? Who are you spending Christmas with? Whose turn is it? What year is it? Some of you with larger families, that, that's a consideration to figure out, okay, what are our plans? And that's, honestly, Thanksgiving, I think, is one of the best holidays we still celebrate today to compare with Passover. Because it was a celebration. It was thanksgiving and praise to God. Why? For delivering them from slavery in Egypt. That's what they were celebrating with the Passover. Yes, we understand that they had to paint the door frame. We talked about that last time as well. Blood was shed to redeem them, to buy them out of slavery. But overall, they were celebrating being set free. And that's kind of what this is. Okay, who are we celebrating with this year? It's Passover. We're here in Jerusalem. Whom are we celebrating with? And it's his disciples. Could have been his family, but we know that his family, earlier in the book of Mark, thought he was crazy, so probably not. Could be other followers, but he is designing this that he will observe this Passover with the 12. And it seems like only the 12. That these are the ones he's going to gather with. This is his group of close associates. This is his family, if you will. And he tells them, make ready. Go to this. He'll show you a large upper room. Probably would have been on the roof. Upstairs, prepare the Passover meal. Get it ready for us. Verse 16. So his disciples went out. Those are the two. And came into the city and surprise, surprise, found it just as he had said to them. And they prepared the Passover. Now at this point, some people want to talk about, did he arrange all this in advance and reserve the upper room? Or is this all miraculous? Is this all from his omniscient sovereign plan? Well, he worked it out. There are parts of it that I think are miraculous. Because even if he had made the reservation with this guy in advance, how did he know that at the time of day they were going to be walking on such and such a street and the guy's going to be carrying the pitcher of water? If it was all non-miraculous, then that guy must have gotten really tired walking all over the city all day, all week, waiting for them to see him carrying the pitcher of water. So I think there's a miraculous element of this. Whether or not it was, it's, it's the same kind of thing we had back in chapter 11 when he said, go into the city and there's going to be a, a donkey tied up that has never been ridden. It's the same thing. Could there have been some, some human interaction to reserve, to set up that situation? Absolutely. Was there also a miraculous component that only God could do? Yes, I think absolutely. So it happened just as Jesus had said to them. Now, why is all this so secret? To modernize this for us for a minute, why didn't he just give them the address to put into their phones 
so that they could get directions to this place? Or why didn't he just send them the contact information for the house, the, the house owner? And the answer is, there needs to be an element of secrecy. Why? That's why I backed up to the previous two verses a few minutes ago, because Judas was doing what? He was watching. He was looking for an opportunity to betray. So what Jesus is doing is sending out two of his disciples, setting all of it up, making all the arrangements without giving any specifics, and Judas is trying to eavesdrop probably, and he's got nothing. Because Jesus knew his father's will, and he was obeying it completely, and he was setting it up so that he could have an undisturbed, uninterrupted Passover meal with only his 12. No religious leaders invited for this. No soldiers sent from the temple. So he was hiding the location from Judas. Now let's talk for a moment about the Passover. Some of you may have done some research on this. It's fascinating to study the different feasts. I think the ladies did a study in that a couple years ago about the different feasts from the Old Testament. Well, Passover was a roasted lamb, unleavened bread, and a dish of bitter herbs. You can find that again in Exodus 12, 8 through 20. The lamb represented the blood that was shed. It had to be applied to the, the doorposts, painted on there with a hyssop branch. And that was to prevent the angel of death from killing their firstborn. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Then the bread, the unleavened bread, reminded them that they went out in a hurry. They had to make haste. They didn't have time for the bread to rise. So it's reminding them that they went out from Egypt and they had to leave quickly. The bitter herbs were supposed to represent their suffering as slaves and to remind them of that. And then sometime in the centuries that followed, they had added the tradition of there was a cup of wine mixed with water and there were four times they would stop and drink from the cup. And all of that played into what Jesus was celebrating with his disciples on that night. As I mentioned earlier, this is his last Passover, and he is the Passover lamb. So it's very significant. It, it's easy for us to see being on this side of it and being able to read it. So let's look at just two verses about him being the lamb of God. The beginning of John's gospel, chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist sees Jesus. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and what did he say about him? Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist, the last Old Testament prophet, saw Jesus, and that's what he said about him. He is the Lamb of God, takes away all of the sin. He is the one who is coming to redeem from sin. Redeem from the slavery of sin. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul writing to the church at Corinth, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened for indeed here it is christ our passover was sacrificed for us so he's taking these same kind of things the idea of unleavened bread and he's showing the symbols but then he describes jesus is our passover he was sacrificed for us so all sorts of symbolism that they wouldn't have been aware of yet but jesus sure was and he is drawing their attention to it first we saw that god is sovereign he jesus has arranged all of this 
where they're going to eat. He understands that he is the fulfillment of the symbolism in the Passover. And then we come to this next sec- section that anyone can commit any sin apart from the grace of God, verses 17 through 19. What I mean by that is that we have a sin nature. I just read from Corinthians. Even Paul had a sin nature. He recognized that. He wrote about it in Romans 7. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The things that I would do, those are the things I don't do. The things that I want to do, those are the things I don't do. What am I going to do? Well, Jesus Christ. His grace, his guidance, his sanctifying power in us. But we have the ability to commit any sin. And I think sometimes, maybe particularly those of us who have grown up in the church or you're in a family of believers and you think, oh, I would, I would never do what that person did. Well, we have different areas in which we're tempted, but any of us is capable of doing any sin. And, and you're just lying to yourself to say, oh, I would never do that. I could never do that. No, we're, we have a sin nature. We have indwelling sin that we are still at war against. We have sinful flesh. That's what I'm trying to point out in these verses. Verse 17. In the evening, he came with the twelve. The meal was supposed to be eaten at night, right after sunset. Had to be completed before midnight. And it says, he came with the 12. Either Peter and John came back and got them, or it's just saying that they're all gathered together. Now, it's helpful as we get into these chapters about the last week of Jesus' life. We we call it Passion Week often. It's helpful to us to compare one gospel to another. And as we look at John 13, we see that between verses 17 and 18, right where I stopped in Mark, There are details about Jesus washing his disciples' feet. That's what happens here. We also read, I think in Luke and John, that he began to be very sorrowful, very troubled. Why? Because he knew what was coming. He knew what was coming in terms of Judas betraying him. He knew what was coming in terms of suffering physically and death. And more than anything else, he understood the separation of, from his father that was coming as God the Father's wrath was poured out on him. So he's deeply troubled. And in all four Gospels, I think this is significant, anytime all four of them tell us about something, I think we need to take notice. All four Gospels tell us that at this point, Jesus said, one of you will betray me. And in all four Gospels, They were stunned. They were surprised. They were shocked. And as we have here in Mark, they were wondering, who is it? Could it be me? What's going on here? We have, I believe, Judas was an unbeliever, so an unsaved person, we might say today, is doing the work of Satan. He's ultimately doing the work of God but he is influenced by Satan to betray Jesus. And we see that at work, but we also see Jesus. I mentioned John tells us that he washed his disciples' feet. He washed Judas' feet. And we're going to see statements here in Mark as well that he's extending opportunities to Judas to repent. 
and he could have. Now, there were prophecies. Someone would have had to do what Judas did. I recognize that. And we also know he didn't repent. But Jesus, in his love and mercy and grace, is extending that grace, that kindness, that favor to Judas, giving him opportunities. And we see that here. We, we see it over in John with washing his feet. Verse 18. Now, as they sat and ate the Passover, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. Now, I'm reading from the New King James, and it says they sat and ate. Some of you may have a translation that says something more like they reclined at table. Because as we talked about last week, many of their feasts, they would prop up on an elbow and and be basically lying down at the table. They might have pillows, and the, the table was low off the floor. But what's interesting, even if they had wanted to sit, like you all are sitting in chairs right now, by that time, tradition was that they couldn't. The Passover meal in particular, they were required to recline at table. That was the posture they had to sit in, or lie in, to eat this meal. Why? This was to show that God had given them the promised land and that he had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. Because that first Passover, again, you can read about it in Exodus 12, they had to be ready to eat. As I looked at it, they were supposed to be standing up ready to go. So they possibly weren't even sitting that first time that they ate it, let alone lying down. They were standing, eating this meal, ready to leave. But now that they were in the promised land, they thought it was appropriate, it was suitable as they're celebrating God's deliverance that we can lie down. We can make ourselves comfortable. We aren't going anywhere because he has given us the blessing of rest in the promised land. So they're beginning what they have done so many times whatever your Christmas or Thanksgiving traditions are, just kind of going through it. Probably the disciples aren't thinking that much of it. And he says, Assuredly I say to you, I've pointed out that phrase several times already, pay attention, this is truth. One of you is going to betray me. One of you who eats with me will betray me. Now, in previous predictions, prophecies of Jesus' crucifixion, he's told them, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be turned over to the Gentiles. I will be delivered up, is how he's worded it. But now he's saying, someone in this room is going to betray me. That's a very different statement. It's not just, I'm going to be delivered over. Somebody's going to act the part of the traitor. It's one of you is going to betray me. All of the important events, Passover, Passion Week, they were prophesied, many of them hundreds of years before. We read about them in different books of the Old Testament. I'm going to share with you one from Psalm 41. This is what's being fulfilled here. Psalm 41.9, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Psalm 41 is written by David. 
he is writing it about a guy named Ahithophel. I don't know who that is. You can read about that in 2 Samuel 16 and 17. But this guy was a close friend, a close associate, someone who ate at David's table and then betrayed him during the rebellion of Absalom. So switched sides, defected, became an enemy. Someone who had been a close personal friend became an enemy. And the fact that he betrayed him, that was considered an act of treachery. Very bad. But what's more is this is the one who ate my bread. Because in that culture, if you ate with someone, that's a sign that you're my friend, you can trust me. And instead, the one who ate my bread, David said, has lifted up his heel against me. So Judas is committing sin. He's in the process of betraying. He's looking for an opportunity. This, who knows what was going through his mind while all this other stuff is happening. But we get even more insight into who he is, what he's up to with this third point. Not everyone who seems to be born again is born again. The fact that nobody knew it was Judas means that he had this whole thing down. He, he could, knew what to say, what to wear, what to do. And he looked really good on the outside. Because in this passage at least, the way we know that nobody knew who it was, they began to say, are you talking about me? You don't mean me. Look at it. Verse 19, and they began to be sorrowful and to say to Jesus one by one, is it I? And another said, is it I? Now this is a little ironic because just a few chapters ago and probably just a few days ago in time, they were arguing over who was going to be the greatest. I'm going to be the greatest. I'm going to be on the right in the kingdom. I'm going to be on the left in the kingdom. No, you're not. That's what they were arguing about that night. And here they're almost arguing, is it me? Is it I? Am I going to do this? The way it's worded in the Greek, it's a negative. It's expecting a negative answer, a reassuring answer from Jesus. It's not I, is it? Surely you don't mean me. And they're wanting Jesus to say, no, I don't mean you, Peter. No, I don't mean you, Andrew. No, I don't mean you, James. That's what they're wanting him to say. And as we look at the four Gospels, it doesn't seem like he answered that way. There's a private conversation, I think Matthew records that, in which Jesus said, so you have said, but it seems like that's only between him and Judas. So Judas knew he was looking into betraying Jesus, and Jesus knew Judas was going to do it, but nobody else in the room knew. All of them are in a good position right now in one respect at least all but Judas. And that's that they're doing some soul searching. I don't think they're just trying to save face. Oh no, you can't mean me, Lord. It, as I read it, giving them the benefit of the doubt, I guess, is that they are sincerely concerned. Now they get over it, because Peter goes on, we'll, we'll read it in a future chapter, no, I would never betray you, Lord. No, I would never deny you. But for this moment, it seems like they're a little uneasy. At least uneasy, maybe convicted, I don't know. They realize that they are capable of sinning. And we don't need to dwell on that. We are saved. We are saved from the penalty of sin. We are saved from the power of sin. 
And someday we will be saved from the presence of sin. But we do need to be aware of it. We have an adversary, and he is walking about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Satan is out to thwart the will of God. And we need to realize as soon as, well, let's just go to the language of Scripture. Let a man take heed who thinks he stands lest he fall. As soon as I think I've got my act together, I've got victory over this sin, watch out. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. We've got to be aware that we are dealing with indwelling sin and we need the Holy Spirit's help to deliver us from temptation, to deliver us from evil. Verse 20 is Jesus' answer. He answered and said to them, oh, come on, guys, you know it's Judas. No, that's not what he said. He says, it is one of the 12 who dips with me in a dish. So he still hasn't answered the question, but he's gotten more specific. What, what does this mean? To dip in the dish means that he's sitting close to me. Maybe at a, at a fancier meal you have butter down on one end of the table or, or two baskets of bread or something. So same thing. Three or probably at most four of the people at this meal, and there were 13 of them, would be sharing the same little dish that they could dip their bread in. So he is close enough in proximity to Jesus at this moment that he's not more than two people away around the table. It seems, as we read the Gospels, that John was on one side of Jesus during this meal and Judas was on the other. He was sitting close to him, or lying, reclining close to him. When he said he is one of the twelve, he is again emphasizing that he's one of you. He's among us right now. And he's also giving Judas one more opportunity to repent. Verse 21, the son of, God, son of man indeed goes just as is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Son of man means Jesus. We've seen that lots of times. He likes describing himself that way in the gospels. When it says he goes, it means he must die to fulfill the scripture, to fulfill scripture passages like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. It's been prophesied. The Son of Man is going to die. He's going to suffer. He's going to be sacrificed for sin. The Son of Man is going to go on the course that God has appointed for him. When it says, as it is written, it's saying he wasn't a victim. There are some people, certainly liberals and those who don't believe that Jesus was God, would say that this was a good revolution movement and it just flew out of control and he got himself killed. That is not what happened. Going back to point one, God is sovereign. This is going according to God's plan. Jesus chose to lay his life down. He said that in the book of John. I lay myself, my, my life down. No one takes it from me. So where it says, as it is written, there's scripture written about Jesus. There's also scripture written about the betrayer. And it was part of the predetermined plan for God to provide salvation that someone would betray him. And that, we know, was Judas. 
I said this last week, but I don't, I, I think it escapes us. Judas had gone out and worked miracles in the name of Jesus. How does that work? I don't know, but he did. The scriptures tell us that the Holy Spirit empowered him temporarily. We read the same thing with Saul in the Old Testament. Someone who seems not to be a regenerate person, someone who is not saved, can still be influenced by the Holy Spirit of God. And he worked miracles, and he cast out demons. And isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7? There are some who will come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, we have prophesied, we have worked miracles, we have healed people, we have cast out demons, and we've done all of this in your name. And what is the king's response? Depart from me. I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. How do we have a relationship with God? Only through Jesus Christ as Savior. That's the only way we can. And Judas did not have that. When Jesus says, woe, a lot of times we think, that's really bad. But apparently, the way it's coming across in the original language, he's showing pity for Judas. He's lamenting the path that Judas has chosen and is acting out. He says it would be good for that man if he had never been born. Why? Because apart from salvation in Jesus Christ alone, Judas and anyone else who repeats his folly will be in hell forever. To die without Christ, to reject the free offer of salvation that we have in Jesus and his saving work. John MacArthur wrote, this is one of the strongest statements in Scripture on human responsibility for believing in Jesus Christ coupled with the consequences of such unbelief. There are consequences for not believing on Jesus as Savior. And they're eternal. They're serious. It should be sobering to us. But Judas isn't in hell today simply because he betrayed Jesus. That's a bad thing. The youngest in the room, I think, could agree. Betraying Jesus is a bad thing. But he's in hell for rejecting salvation in Jesus. The same thing that sent Judas to hell is the same thing that could send anyone to hell today, and that is rejecting the free offer of salvation in Christ. Warren Wiersbe wrote, if you have never been born again, one day you will wish you had not been born at all. And that's what Jesus is saying about Judas right now. It would be good if he had never been born. Why? Because he's going to betray me? Yes. But much more than that, because he's going to reject salvation that is found only in me, Jesus is saying. John 13 tells us that Judas was sitting in the place of honor. In that passage, Jesus gave Judas a piece of bread dipped in the herbs, the, the little sauce type thing that they had. And that's what a host would do for his special guest. If you want to show somebody honor, then you take a piece of bread and put it in 
in this case, it was apples and, and dates and things that were ground up into a paste, and then you give that to the person. And all the way to the end, we read in John, he loved them to the end. He loved Judas to the end. But what we read is that Judas did not repent after the morsel Satan possessed him. He left the upper room and nobody else knew what he was doing, but Jesus did. And he went off and said, here's the plan. We're going to get him in the garden tonight. In this last warning from Jesus, it would be good if he had never been born. He is still extending an offer of grace. He, he is still inviting Jesus, Judas to repent. Someone said Jesus loved Judas, and if we miss his love toward Judas, even though that love was rejected, if we miss that love, we miss the whole story. Is this not what Jesus taught us, his followers, love your enemies, do good to those who persecute you. He's demonstrating it in an amazing way. So as we continue in this long section in Mark, we've seen again that God is sovereign. Jesus is orchestrating all this exactly according to his plan. It's going to go according to his timing in his way. And we need to be on guard lest we Become puffed up in pride and say, oh, I, I would never do anything like that. Be careful. Be careful. We read Ezekiel and Isaiah about Satan, and he was puffed up in pride. In some ways, that was the original sin of pride. Anyone can commit any sin apart from the grace of God. And not everyone who seems to be born again is born again. Everybody else in the room other than Jesus and Judas would have said, that is an upstanding guy. That's why he's our treasurer, because we can trust him. But he wasn't a believer. He did not believe in Jesus as the Messiah. So what do we do with this? If anyone here in the room or anyone online is not a believer in Jesus, the answer is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. That's the promise of Acts 16. To be born again, as Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3. Don't act the part. Don't play games with eternity. Don't just hope that you can put on the right face and say the right things when you come to church. God is extending mercy to you today. How do I know that? Because we've just been reading the good news about Jesus. That he suffered and died in our place, so that we could have eternal life by believing in him. That is an offer of mercy. That is his grace extended to each one of us today. We just have to respond, to turn, and to believe. Believers. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. I'm not saying this because I want anybody, old or young, in the room to doubt your salvation. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm just saying don't play the game. Don't lie to yourself. If you've never repented of your sins and believed the gospel, don't pretend that you have. 
Furthermore, if you are a believer and you know that you are, recognize the weakness of your flesh and depend on God's grace for strength in temptation to achieve victory in temptation. It's all coming from him, from his grace. And then spiritual growth toward Christ-likeness. And as we continue to study this together, praise God for his miraculous plan of redemption. The Passover lamb. Next week, Lord willing, if we don't all get raptured this week, we're going to gather in the same room and we're going to absorb the Lord's Supper together from the next part of this passage. Again, looking at some of the similarities between Passover and what we now observe as the Lord's Supper. And what are the parallels? And what did he mean? What was he changing this symbology? We have so much to be thankful for. Are you going to praise him right now? Are you going to praise him this week? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I just want to take a brief moment to let you respond to anything God has shown you this morning. I prayed at the outset that we would be convicted and encouraged where we need it. And if you needed encouragement this morning, I pray you have heard it, have seen it, have read it. It may be that someone here has been convicted this morning. If there is anyone who's playing the game like Judas was, please talk to me or someone else before you leave this place. We can show you additional passages from the Word that you could receive the forgiveness of sins found in Jesus. Maybe you're a believer and there's some sin in your life today that you know about and you need to forsake it. You need to confess it and turn from it. Father, I pray that we would obey what you are showing us to do right now. We pray that your Holy Spirit would have free reign in our hearts right now and throughout this day, throughout this week, that you would bring to mind your words from this passage and can you continue to teach and remind as we need it. Continue to convict and encourage as we need it that your will would be accomplished in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.